0: Well, we're in a series that we're calling Vital Signs, and I realized this morning as I got into my car that I guess we're doing the right series. I get in the car, start the engine, and the first thing I hear from the radio is, so let's talk about blood pressure. And I'm thinking, well, let's not. And he got the, they were interviewing a doctor, and so the interviewer is saying, So tell me about blood pressure, systolic, diastolic, all this stuff. And and eventually the physician said, well, you know, as with most things, they're scaling the averages and the normal ranges down. And so if you're like over 110, you've got a blood pressure problem now in that first number. If your bottom number is near 90, you've got a problem. So I turned that channel. (laughs) But I was reminded that vital signs are important. And we go to the physician, whether it's an annual checkup, whether it's because something's not working, right? We go, and the doctor takes our vital signs. Now, when you show up to the physician's office, your vital signs usually fit into four. They check your pulse rate, your temperature, your your respiration rate, and they also take your blood pressure. They also put you on a scale and figure out how much you weigh. Then after a while, they take that little stick on the scale, right, and they put that up and they put it on the top of your head. And, you know, just for um, informational purposes, are any of you shrinking or is it just me? I I feel, I stand on my tippy toes now. I don't want to get smaller. Um, And then once you turn 50, they start doing other tests too, but we're not going to talk about those this morning. (laughs) But the reason physicians take vital signs is because it's kind of like an inventory The present inventory matched to your history and then they map out a plan how we can grow to greater degrees of health. But here's the bottom line, physically we're all deteriorating and headed in the wrong direction. That makes our spiritual vital signs even more important. Your spiritual vital signs, your spiritual life goes on forever and ever. So in some ways, it's even more important that we take our spiritual vital signs and we're able to see how we're doing when it comes to our spiritual health. Well, this morning, all you need to know for the rest of our time together, all you need to know about spiritual vital signs is 242. 242. You got 242, you got it. Well, what is 242? Well, 242 is actually the name of a skateboard company. And they also, make, uh, they also make graffiti pictures. Uh, do any of you have, have any ever heard of 242 before? Uh, you may think, well, Charles, are you a skater? Yes, I am. Can't you tell by looking? <laughs> I didn't bring my board this morning, or I'd break my neck trying to do a little trick with you. No, no, no. That's not what 242 is. No, 242 actually is the area code for the Bahamas. And as long as we're talking about destinations and where we should be and where God wants us to be, I figured we'd talk about the Bahamas. Any of you want to go with me? Right, well, let me close in prayer and we'll get started. No, no, that's not 242 either. The 242 that you have to remember and keep in mind when it comes to spiritual vital signs is Acts 2.42. Acts two forty-two. Acts 2.42 gives us four defining characteristics of spiritual health. And so Acts 2.42 reads as follows. They devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching... To fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. When you go to the physician, there are four vital signs. Paul says, throughout the, throughout his letters, and Luke records in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 2, there are four spiritual vital signs. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. 2.42 gives us the defining characteristics of spiritual health. But before we get to the specifics of the diagnostic verse, it's important for us to know a little bit about the context and how we get to 242. Acts 242 appears in the second chapter almost toward the end of Acts chapter 2, but that means that Acts chapter 1 and most of Acts chapter 2 came before that. We did a series on the book of Acts a couple of years ago, and some of you may remember. We called the series Continuing What Jesus Started, but Differently. Remember that? Acts, continuing what Jesus started, but differently. And here's why. The book of Acts is all about how the early church, how those first Christ followers lived out the gospel. And lo and behold, in the book of Acts, they wind up doing the same things Jesus did in the gospels. So when you, read, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus healing diseases and feeding people and preaching the message of salvation and extending forgiveness of sins. When you come to the book of Acts, that those early Christians are doing the same things Jesus did. But they do those things very differently. Jesus fed people just by kind of multiplying fish and multiplying bread. The early Christians, they feed people by giving of their resources, giving of their food, and then distributing it through the leaders of the church. Jesus called disciples to follow him by just walking up to them while they're at their jobs and say, hey, leave that, come follow me. The early Christians show up, and they preach the gospel, they speak the words of forgiveness, and then say to people, hey, don't you think it'd be wise to make Jesus your number one priority since he made you his number one priority? So that early church in the book of Acts... They continue what Jesus started, but it's not the same. They do the same things, but they do it differently because the context is different. We're called to do the same exact thing. We continue what Jesus started. We continue what those first Christians started. But we will do it differently as well because our context is different. So we continue what Jesus started, but we will do it differently. Well, if you want to understand the book of Acts and all the context that leads up to 242, you have to know something about Acts 1-8. Acts 1-8 is kind of like the summary outline statement for the book. So here's what Acts 1-8 says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, Jesus is speaking, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now in that, we see kind of the guts of the book of Acts. Three words you need to know if you're going to understand Acts. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes up. Right after this, Acts 1-9, is what we call the ascension. Jesus ascends. That's the up part. Acts 1, Jesus goes up. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes down. Jesus goes up, ascension, Spirit comes down. That's Pentecost. Now, here's the important thing that we sometimes trip over. Jesus goes up, spirit comes down, the church, you and me, we go out. The three words are not up, down, sit. That's not how it goes. It's not up, down, soak. It's not up, down, enjoy. It's not up, down, vegetate. It's up, down, out. And as you read the rest of the book of Acts, it's all about those first Christ followers going out. What are they going out doing? What Jesus started. Up, down, out. Notice, the power that they have to go out, the power that they leverage to do what Jesus started comes through the spirit, the spirit of Jesus. Jesus goes up, spirit comes down, Christians go out. That formula hasn't changed. That's how it works, up, down, out. The rest of the book of Acts is all about those first Christians going out. They go out to Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. We follow that same strategy you probably hear us speak, usually, on the first Sunday of each month, about our strategy. We seek to continue what Jesus started differently, locally, regionally, globally. Where do we get that idea? Acts 1.8. Judea, Samaria, remotest parts of the earth. We follow the strategy based on the engine of the Spirit because of up, down, out. You got it? Well, in Acts chapter 2, to show how this works, it's almost like a case study. The beginning of Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down, and Peter, that coward, wimpy guy, preaches a sermon before thousands of people in Jerusalem. Now remember, just a few weeks before, the leaders in Jerusalem killed Peter's leader. They execute Jesus. Peter and all the other first Christians, they're scared to death. They're, they're thinking like this, and you know, they're, they're thinking wisely. If they killed Jesus, they're not going to have any problem killing us, so they hide. They're in the upper room. They're not only in the upper room praying, they're in the upper room hiding. They're scared. Jesus goes up, spirit comes down. All of a sudden, those first Christians go out of the upper room, out of hiding, and Peter preaches the gospel, preaches the message of Jesus to thousands of people, and at the end of the sermon, 3,000 people say, we want to follow Jesus. 3,000 people get baptized and follow Jesus. That's amazing, right? So it's after all that, up, down, out. After that, we read Acts 2.42. So here's our 2.42 diagnostic verse. After up, down, out, Peter goes out. We then read 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Who's the they? Not just the apostles. Not just that small group of Christ followers. All the people that had just come and said, we want to follow Jesus, they all devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Those are the diagnostic, the defining characteristics of spiritual health. And since Acts is just continuing what Jesus started... You can go back and read the Gospels, and you will discover that those same four characteristics are the characteristics that Jesus built into the lives of his disciples. The apostles' teaching, community, breaking of bread, and prayer. Same four. So if those are kind of the four main diagnostic measures, then they need to be uh, true of us as well. Well, before we get to the measures, I want to call your attention to uh, one word. It's the word devoted. Do you see that? Um, it didn't say they dabbled. It says they were devoted. You know, there's a world of difference between dabbling and being devoted. Do you know that? I can prove it to you. How many of you growing up a couple years ago, last week, whatever, how many of you have ever in your past taken music lessons? Raise your hands. A whole, whole host of you guys, all right? Why aren't you all in the worship team? Get your butts up here, let's go. I'll tell you why. Because you dabbled, you weren't devoted. Isn't that right? So let me ask you. When you started taking music lessons, were you so devoted to that instrument, so devoted to the piano, so devoted to the violin, so devoted to the trumpet, so devoted to the guitar, so devoted to tennis, so devoted to football, so devoted to golf, that they just couldn't pry you away from it, right? I mean, your parents would have to, please stop practicing the piano, right? Please put the guitar away. You were practicing piano or guitar so much, your fingers are bleeding, right? You don't care about the clock. You're devoted. You're sacrificing. You lose all your friends. You never watch TV. You never play video games. You never on your cell phone because you're devoted to your instrument. Is that right? Is that what you did? No. How many of you were so devoted that you actually became a musical expert on your instrument? You became a professional tennis player. or Oh, you didn't? Huh. Why? Because we weren't devoted, right? We dabbled. We dabbled at piano. We dabbled at the guitar. We dabbled at violin. We dabbled at tennis. We dabbled at golf. You know what it means to dabble? It means you do it when it's convenient. You do it when you have to. You do it when you have nothing else to do. You do it in your leisure time when nothing else is more important than that, but there are usually a whole host of other things more important than that, right? Isn't that right? What does it mean to be devoted then? To be devoted means that's your top priority. To be devoted means you sacrifice to do it. In order to say yes to whatever you're devoted to, you know you have to say no to a whole bunch of other stuff because you're saying yes to this. When you dabble, you say yes to other things, to what you're devoted to. When you're devoted, you say no to all the other things and yes to that. Notice, Luke says, they devoted themselves, not dabbled, they devoted themselves. Now, here's something that trips us up as well. Dabbling and devoted, are not, they're not, it's not an on-off switch. It's more like a continuum. It, it's more like this. You kind of have dabble on one side, and you have devoted on the other side. But if you're like me, and like most other people, we like off-on switches, Right? We like yes, no, on, off, black, white, crystal clear, right? And so we like it, we're either doing it or we're not. So we think or we wonder, we come to something like Acts 2.42 and we say, oh, yeah, apostles teaching, yeah, yeah, I, I read the Bible a couple months ago. On, I did that. I went to church, uh, I forget when it was. Yeah, I went, on. Um, or it's off, no, I haven't done that. But in the Bible, it's often not off, on. It's not black, white, it's not yes, no. Often in the Scripture, there are continuums. Now, the good news in that is there's always room to improve, right? You can always get better. You can always practice and wind up being better than you were before. The bad news is there is no crystal clear measure that you look at and say, yes, no, on, off. So every one of us, when it comes to the four defining characteristics, we're going to be somewhere on the four continuums. And so my question to you Is there, do you have the courage this morning to first and foremost say, here's where I think I fall on the dabble devoted continuum on the four things? And what would be a next step as I move from dabbling to devotion on the continuum? You willing to do that? Otherwise, you're just going to learn a few things about the verse. It's not going to make much difference. Kind of like when you go to the doctor. Usually your, you know, your appointment with the doctor goes like this. You go through all the vital signs, and then he tells you what you should be doing, right? You get a prescription. You get a list of things you need to do. You can take the prescription and chuck it. You can ignore everything he says, and you will not move toward greater degrees of health. Well, it's the same way. You can take the four defining characteristics and vital signs. If we don't do anything with it, we're going to wind up being in the same place, or we'll be regressing. So the ball's in your court. All right, here we go, our first one. First vital sign is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' teaching. Well, first of all, what in the world is the Apostles' teaching? Well, the New Testament is ultimately, really, a collection of the Apostles' teaching. You may say, Charles, not everything in the New Testament was written by the Apostles. That would be correct, but hear me out. Everything in the New Testament was either written by an Apostle or by a close associate of an Apostle. So, for example... Matthew, first book of the New Testament, Matthew, was an apostle. He's one of the 12 disciples. Therefore, he was a first hand eyewitness of all the stuff that happened. He recorded it. Mark, second gospel, was not an apostle. But Mark was a close associate of Peter. He traveled with Peter, and and in a sense, the gospel of Mark is a record of Peter's preaching. So, you want to hear what Peter's preaching was like? Read Mark. Luke, not an apostle, but a close associate of Paul. If you read the rest of Acts, you'll see Luke and Paul are like always together. Luke records his gospel on the basis of his own investigation and his experience and mentorship, mentoring relationship with Paul. John was an apostle. You read through the rest of the New Testament, it's a collection of the apostles' teaching that comes either through the apostle or through a close associate of, the, of an apostle. But it's not just the New Testament. The New Testament not only tells us information about Jesus, who he is and what he does, the New Testament tells us how to read the Old Testament. So the apostles not only taught about Jesus, who he is and what he he does, the the New Testament tells us how to read the Old Testament. So the apostles' teaching involves how do you understand and put the Old Testament together as well as the message of Jesus and the difference he makes. That's the apostles' teaching. All right, well, how did that first group of people, how did they show their devotion to the apostles? Well, the apostles were there, so they would listen to them. Peter stands up and preaches at the beginning of Acts 2. They listen to what he says. They then record what he says. But rather than just listening, they, listening. they, they listen, they debate, they have conversations, they push back. You see, they're little groups where there's conversation, where they're taking the information and debating it, conversing, you know, working on it, so it becomes not something just in their heads, but something in their hearts and something that then gets lived out. So it is information, but it's information that works in our lives to produce different different ways of living. So how does apostles' teaching work for us? Well, you're all here, and in case you haven't noticed, The majority of our services are all about what the Bible says. It's apostles' teaching stuff. But I sure hope that this isn't the only input you have on the apostles' teaching part. Do you read the Bible on your own? And I don't know what the plan or next step would be for you. Is it a couple times a week? Is it every day? I don't know. I know there are a number of people in 2017 that have said to me, their goal is to read through the Bible this year. Some of them are well on their way. Some others are reading through the New Testament this year. I don't know what the plan is for you, but do you have a way that you're living out devotion to the apostles' teaching? That's one of the markers. Are you dabbling or are you devoted? That's the question. If you had a little continuum, do you dabble at the Bible? Do you read the Bible, think about the Bible when, when it's convenient? Or do you actually live it out? You sacrifice to make it part of you. Are you more devoted to it? I was uh, checking some uh, statistics this week, and you may have heard some of these before, but it's it's rather chilling. Uh, A while back in the fall, we, uh, we did a series called I Believe, and one of those messages was on the Bible. I want to ask you if you remember that message. But I mainly talked about three things that morning. I said the Bible is reliable, the Bible has authority, and the Bible has a purpose, right? reliability, authority, purpose. The Bible's reliable, you can count on what it says. The Bible's authority is given to us by God. Purpose to lead us to Jesus, that's kind of apostles teaching right there. Now if you think about it, if the Bible really is God's word, God tells us about who he is, what are the parameters of his creation, how are we made, what's our problem, what's the solution, how should we live in this world? If it really is God's word, Wisdom would say, we should kind of find out what it is, and we should try to live that out, right? Well, here's the sad statistics. The majority of Americans, now hear me out, the majority of Americans cannot name one of the Ten Commandments. What are the chances of keeping them if you can't even name them? The majority, that, that's pretty scary, isn't it? The majority of Americans could not name one of the Ten Commandments. Here's another one one-third of church-going people cannot name one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. that's people to go to church. Seventy-five percent of the people surveyed said that God helps those who help themselves. Seventy-five percent said that, that that's in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. Benjamin Franklin wrote that. That's not in the Bible. In fact, God helps those that, helps them, that help themselves is actually contrary to the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is, you need to first realize you can't help yourself, then you trust Jesus to help you because you can't help yourself. And here's the last one, maybe the most indicting. 12% of the people surveyed said that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. I don't think they were jo- Mrs. Ark, right? I don't think I, but if the Bible is God's word, it would make sense to kind of make it part of our lives, right? If God's the creator, God has authority, God created things and he tells us how to live, we should kind of live in sync with it, don't you think? That means when you experience trouble, you can say, I have a shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd. When you wake up and it's raining or snowing, this is the day the Lord has made. We will will try to rejoice and be glad in it. When you're insulted, you'll turn the other cheek. Your cheek, not their cheek, all right? When you're cut off on 309 or the turnpike, get behind the Satan, right? Um, so if the Bible's part of you, you'll be able to process that, right? You got it? So you got to do the diagnostic work. Do you dabble with the Bible, New Testament? Or are you devoted? That's the question. If you really believe in reliability, authority, and purpose, you won't just dabble. You'll be devoted. Well, the second thing, apostles teaching fellowship. Now, for those of you that kind of grew up hanging out at church, I need to correct a little misconception here, the word fellowship does not mean a bad potluck dinner and superficial conversation, right? That's not fellowship. Some of you went to a church, maybe had a fellowship hall. That was a misnomer too, all right? The word fellowship, in more vernacular, would be community. It doesn't mean eating a bad meal together and having superficial conversation. It means you're together. You're doing life together. You have people you're navigating life with. You're not seeking to live life alone. Community. A lot of people uh, these days are wrestling with, what does discipleship mean? And we're having those conversations too, right? If you were here uh, January 1st, uh, you may remember Fuji spoke that morning, and Fuji's helping us put together our discipleship uh, program, methodology, philosophy, at Quakertown that will then also work here. And uh, If you boil it all down, in my opinion, discipleship comes down to two things, encouragement and accountability. That's it. You encourage and you hold accountable. But if we're going to be honest, we're terrible at both of them. We don't encourage, we critique. But our critique is not a positive um, accountability, it's just kind of critiquing, moaning and complaining, right? We encourage. I sure hope, you know, we build more, and I need to build more into my life, encouragement. Here's the point. Catch people doing things well. Catch people doing it right. Parents, we'd be a whole lot better off if we would catch our kids doing something right and affirm and encourage that. Rather than only getting involved and only stepping in when they're doing something wrong, we have to stop it. Kids want attention. Take some. doesn't take them long to figure out. If I want attention, I kind of live outside the lines. Well, why not give them encouragement when they're doing something right? You'll affirm and continue that behavior. Catch people doing things right. Encourage them. I sure hope you encourage people here at Calvary Church that sacrifice for us. And we have a lot of people that work behind the scenes, right? We have light techs and sound techs. We have valet parkers. We have ushers. We have lots of people, children's workers. You know, a little bit of encouragement would go a long way to help those volunteers to help those people feel good and valued in what they're doing. We have band members that lead us every Sunday. Do you encourage those folks or only complain when they don't play the songs you like? They don't use the volume level you like. See, complaining isn't really encouragement or accountability. But then there is the accountability side too, right? Sometimes you have to say some hard words. Some of you probably had this experience. You ever had someone uh, say to you, I really have to have a difficult conversation. This person is just irritating me to no end, living outside the lines, and I've got to talk to him about it. My first thought is always, I hope it's not me. (laughs) I sure hope you're not coming to talk to me about that stuff, right? But do we have those conversations? You see, there's encouragement, the good side, the affirming side, but there's the accountability side, speaking the truth in love. That's the context. Uh, I read an article this past week, and Charlie Shedd um, is married to Martha, and he shared a story of something that happened where he was referring to speaking the truth in love. And he said they had had you know, a pretty nasty argument that morning, kind of a knockdown, dragout drag-out fight, and Martha left to go wherever she was going that day, but she left him a note. And here's what the note said. Dear Charlie, I hate you. Love, Martha. <laughs> That's good, right? I, you know, she's being honest. I hate you, but it's in the context of love. When I read that article, I was thinking about... Um, my former church. I had a church in New York uh, for a number of years, and when we started out, there were lots of Norwegians. If there are Norwegians here, you, you can bear, bear this out for me. Uh, lots of Norwegians were there. Norwegians are not very um, verbal, and they're not very uh, open, not very transparent. So, for example, if a Norwegian is going through a really, really rough time, and you say, how are you doing? You say, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. If they're really angry, they'll say, I'm a little concerned. How are you? But I'm fine. But I'm fine, right? So we had a bunch of Norwegians, kind of a little standoffish, not really letting their lives open too much to people. Well, soon, we had lots of Italians coming to the church. And just in case you're wondering, Italians usually are not, they don't have a problem kind of sharing what's going on, right? So often the Italians would say things like, I'm just so angry. I'm mad. And the Norwegians would say, oh, my goodness. And then the Italians would say, well, don't you get mad? No, you, sh- you shouldn't say you're mad. Then the Italians are mad that they're not mad. Oh, it's a big thing. You know, we need a little bit of Norwegian and Italian, right? We need some of that encouragement and, yeah, we can navigate life, but we also need some of the honesty that comes with the Italian side. Now, again, that is a little pejorative, but you kind of get the point. Speak the truth, but do it in love. We need both of the pieces together. That's what community is. Community is not unanimity. Community is our differences, coming together in harmony that brings community. That's what the first followers of Christ devoted their lives to. They didn't just dabble at community. They were devoted to community. So you know what that means? First and foremost, you have to show up. Contrary to what a lot of people would say in our culture, you can't have true Christian community only on Facebook. You can't do it only through Instagram or Twitter. True community happens face-to-face, arm-in-arm, next to each other. Those other social media things may be helpful, but they are not the only thing. There there has to be more than that. You need to show up. But secondly, after showing up, you have to engage. You have to open up. So if you're going to have community, you need to show up and open up. Those are the two steps. So how are you doing? Are you dabbling or are you devoted? Do you dabble with community? Show up when you have nothing else to do? Do you open up uh, only when you have to? Dabbling or devoted? Next one. Not just community, but to the breaking of bread. Now look, a lot of you are church people. I can tell by looking. So when I say breaking of bread, what do you all immediately think of? You all think of communion. And that would be right and wrong. Wrong. It would be right because... That's certainly not excluded. It would be wrong because that certainly isn't the guts of what Luke's writing. you got to understand the context, understand the difference. When we talk about breaking of bread, having communion, here's what we do. You get a little piece of matzah cracker, right? You don't even get, you know, you don't get jelly or anything. You get a little piece of matzah cracker and a shot glass full of grape juice. That's what we get. And we call that um, breaking of bread. You don't even get to break it, right? Breaking of bread. Um, now, nothing wrong with that, right? We do that to remember. It's not, it's, not to, you know, it, it's not to have a snack. We do that to remember. We remember Jesus taking bread and saying, this is my body given for you. And he takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you, right? So we remember what Jesus said and what Jesus did. But in the early church, the bread and the cup were parts of a whole meal, They didn't just gather for a piece of cracker and a shot glass full of grape juice. They gathered for a meal. And part of the gathering for the meal was to serve one another because some in the congregation didn't have enough money to purchase a whole meal. And so when you gathered together, you would bring your bread, you would bring your food, you'd bring your meal. And if you had a lot, you brought enough so that those who didn't have enough could share what you had. There's sharing, there's service, there's hospitality, there's giving. That's what it's about. In fact, you can read this afternoon, read 1 Corinthians 11, before the football game, 1 Corinthians 11, there Paul writes and says, you guys have a problem, it would be better off that you not even had the Lord's Supper. Because those of you that have a lot of stuff and a lot of food, you all say among yourselves when you're going to to gather, when you're going to eat, but you don't tell all the people that don't have anything. So you get together and you pig out. And you're all stuffed, you know, filled to overflowing. And some of you need to cut back a little bit. And those of you that don't have enough, they're not even invited. They show up and the meal's over. And then you want to know what Paul says to show you how seriously God takes this? That's the reason some of you in your church died early. That's what, that's what he said. I didn't say it. That's why some of them died early. God takes seriously this service, this sharing thing. So what does breaking of bread mean? It means we share, we share our lives, we share our resources, we share our food, we share our mo- we share those things. That's what breaking of bread is, doing life together, not just fellowship in the sense of community, but serving one another, loving one another, doing it like that, those inside and those outside. All right, I'm going to test the, how pop culture some of you are. How many of you have, it's kind of dying now, how many of you ever played in the last few months Pokemon Go? Raise your hands. Oh, we had a few. The one, more, the one day I'm leaving church, it started in July, it's kind of falling out of, out of, out of use already. Um, I'm leaving a church one day, and these two. this one van runs this way, another van, and so I think they're lost, right? So I say, oh, can I help you? Oh, no, no, we're playing Pokemon Go, and there are a lot of things we're catching around here. Do <laughs> um, uh, You know what Pokemon Go is, right? It, they call it augmented reality. It's kind of new technology, right? And you play it on your phone. You download the app, and you look onto your, you know, the screen of your phone, and it shows you reality. So it shows you. Like if I had it here, it'd show you, you know, show you, you would all be on my screen. But then there are little creatures that show up that are not really in the room, and I try to catch them, right? Augmented reality plus all the Pokemon things, right? Um, I kind of suspect that that's kind of what Luke was saying. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. As we go through life, we should go through with an augmented sense of reality. And so the motto for Pokemon Go was, catch them all. I think the motto that the gospel would say is, love and serve them all. We go through life with an augmented sense of reality, looking for needs, looking for people that we can come alongside and serve, and we're trying to love and serve them all. But you've got to have a perspective that's driving you to do that rather than make it all about me, me first, me, and not interested in someone else. So the breaking of bread, that's the service piece. It's not just talking about a religious ritual where we gather together and take a cracker and a, and a little grape juice. It's talking about a perspective for life. That's the vital sign, serving people in life. Well, we've got one last one. Prayer. 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 Do you notice we've got two bookends? The apostles teaching, that's kind of God speaking, right? The apostles record God's message, record the gospel, and prayer is kind of the bottom piece. That means that our service and our community must be in the context of our relationship with God. It comes from God's Word, not just in our minds, but living it out in our hearts and our lives. And it comes from prayer. That's our dependence. That's the peace coming alongside, recognizing that we can't do it and don't do it in ourselves. Now, what is prayer? Now, you know what prayer is, right? Prayer is kind of talking to God. The Bible, you can think of God talking to us. Okay, have a conversation. But at the end of the day, we pray or we don't pray based on these two things. You and I pray... When we sense and are aware of our weakness, isn't that right? I would venture to say, if you look back over the course of your life, the times when you were most engaged in prayer were the times when you knew life was out of your control. You were reminded of how weak you are. You don't have the resources to do what, what you're required to do. And so you sense your weakness, so you pray. But along with sensing your own weakness, you pray to God because you recognize his strength. See how they come together? We pray because we know we can't do it. We're weak. We pray to God because we know he can do it. Well, those are to be two attitudes that we need to live out regularly. We often live under the delusion that we've got life handled, right? But the reality is, the truth is, we don't. Life is out of our control. So we need to build into our lives reminders of our weakness and of his strength. And nothing like prayer allows you to remember those things. So if that means you need to schedule time, if that means come up with a little mnemonic device, you know, there are lots of things that may help you pray. Um, here's one that you know I learned years and years and years ago. Um, you've heard of Acts, not Acts the book, but the acrostic, right? Each of the letters means something. Here's, here's a good way for you to pray. Adoration, A, right? Adore God, just remind yourself of who he is and be amazed at the fact that a God like that wants to hear from somebody like you. See confession. Um, Take time to realize, you know what? I screw up, but I can confess my sins and remind myself of the forgiveness that still flows from Jesus. Thanksgiving, all the good things we have in life really do come from God. Thank him for them. And then supplication. They needed an S. That's just request, but you don't want to say actor, right? So it's acts, supplication, request. We usually major on the request part. So maybe as a little uh, measure from dabble, to add devoted, when's the last time you prayed and the primary focus of your prayer was just thinking about who God is and being amazed at who he is and just adoring him for who he is? I'd be willing to bet bat. Not a whole lot of time was spent adoration if we take the collective group this morning and did an assessment. Confession? Yeah, we probably do a little bit of that because I can tell by looking we, we mess up a lot. Thanksgiving? You know, we often attribute most of what we have to our discipline, our strength, our wisdom, our skill. Is that really true? And then supplication. We probably do a fair bit of that, but we can even get better at that. So the two bookends, the apostles teaching, the understanding of who God is, who we are, who Jesus is, that comes through the scripture. And the other bookend of prayer, recognizing my weakness and God's strength and and his amazing willingness to come alongside, meet me, and meet all of my needs and give me all that I need to live as he calls me to." That's pretty amazing, right? And in between, live in community with each other, speaking the truth in love, and live serving people inside and outside the church. Well, in case you haven't realized this, I want to remind you of something at the end. We live in a culture that tells us to be devoted to our happiness, right? Be devoted to our success. Be devoted to getting life and living life the way we want it to live. Isn't that right? God never calls us to be devoted to our happiness, our success, or to living life as we want it to go. Our culture calls us to that. The gospel doesn't call us to that. The gospel calls us to be devoted to the Bible, to community, to service and to prayer, recognizing our weakness and God's strength. So which of those rubrics, which of those set of characteristics are you going to live by? That's the question. You get the vital signs from your culture all the time. You wake up, they're on TV, they're on the radio, they're in magazines, they're online. You read them all the time. Be devoted to yourself, to your happiness, your success, life as you want to do. That vital sign is all. Are you going to follow that prescription or are you going to follow God's? be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to community, to service, and to prayer. Ball's in our court, right? Which prescription will you follow? Which set of principles are you living toward? Which health are you moving toward? Cultural health or gospel health? Let's stand. Ball's in our court. Let's live out the prescription of God. (laughs) Father, we thank you that... You give us the prescription. You tell us the characteristics. You tease out for us the vital signs. You tell us what to be devoted to. Lord, we confess that we dabble with the apostles' teaching, community, service, and prayer, but we're devoted to other things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to seriously do diagnosis And help us to take the courageous step of figuring out what the next step would be and implementing that as we move towards spiritual health as defined in 242. Thanks for giving us the script. And Lord, thanks for giving us your spirit that gives us the power, the energy, and the wisdom to live that out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.